in a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn and uh, uh, say some things to the person next to you. So if you're an introvert, this is the part of the service that you hate. But first, let me cue it up for a moment. I was in the third grade reciting the times tables to Mrs. Oxender. They came easy for me, and as I stood at her side and recited those times tables, I got to the 12s. 12 times 12 is 144. And before she sent me back to my desk, she said, Steve, this came easy for you. Your mind is a trap. I didn't know what that meant. She said, you have to use your mind. That was all I remember. I was in the sixth grade when Mr. Smooze, that's a name. <laughs> Tom Smooze. We were doing a class play and they were handing out lines and I refused to take part in the play because I stuttered every other sentence. I couldn't say the F's, I couldn't say the S's. And there's just too many words with F's or S's. And so I kept resisting. And he pulled me aside and said, you have to do this. I said, because I'm tall. You have to be the king, he said. I said, is it because I'm tall? He said, no, it's because you should lead. I don't remember anything else in that conversation except that. I remember where I was when I received the letter from Keith Drury. I'd been in ministry not that long. And it's a two-page letter I still have. I remember sitting on the desk while Lori came into the office and I said, you're not going to believe this. And I read words that empowered me. He finished by saying, you'll write a book. You must. You have to. So I did. And then a DS in the South got hold of it. And he wrote me a letter and said, I'm not even sure you're a Wesleyan. So, he said, I don't think you know what you're talking about. He kind of took me on. I was young. I was defending myself. I called Keith. He said, how long is it? I said, it's one page. He said, you have a page to defend yourself no longer. Send it to me after you're done, before you send it to him. Little by little, I look over my life, you guys, and I have found people that have been there at critical moments. When I was invisible, they saw me. When I felt unwanted, they chose me. And they saw in me things I did not know were there, and they called it out. So here's my question. Get ready for the conversation. Who is the first person outside of your family who noticed you? for the good. How did you know they noticed you? Those are the questions. Who is the first person outside of your family who noticed you? And how did you know it? Now turn and tell the person, I'll give you a few seconds.
Beautiful. Beautiful. Did you get that? Are you done? You... I hate to break up this perfectly good party. Here's my guess. They were probably, I don't mean this in a negative way, not the smartest person that you've ever met. Now, again, I don't mean to say that they weren't smart. I'm just saying you've met other people since then that were far smarter intelligently. They were probably not the most successful person in their field that you've ever met just means they were good at what they did, but you've met other people since that were even more successful in their trade. What they did that was genius was for a few seconds, they found you and they saw something in you that you didn't know was there. And what they saw, they created potential we learn is not something static that lies dormant in a person waiting to be discovered. Potential is the spark of life. Your talent, your abilities are fertile soil, but when someone sees in you the good, it's like they plant a seed. And it wouldn't have happened unless they planted it. And from that seed, something new came to life. In a few moments, I'm going to ask you to be one of those people. Just like somebody poured into your life, elevated you, steadied you, encouraged you, sometimes convicted you, I'm going to ask you in a moment to be that person for someone else. Because attention is one of the most powerful forces in the world. When we pay attention to someone, we can change their destiny. There's a time at the beginning of Israel's life in Exodus they go into Egypt, a tribe of 70. 400 years later, they number in the hundreds of thousands. The Egyptians are intimidated by them, and so they throw them into slavery. There's two kinds of slaves in those days. Domestic slaves work in the house, which means the work is a little easier, and the accommodations are provided. And farm slaves work outside either making bricks for Pharaoh's cities or working in the farms. It's hard, cruel work, and the accommodations are not provided. You're on your own. To the Egyptians, the slaves are property. They have no souls. And so the Hebrews are enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. No one alive remembers a day when it was any different. But things are about to change. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, it says, During the long period... 
the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned. Their cry went up to God. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God was concerned. Now, when it says God heard, it doesn't mean he wasn't listening before. It means he leaned in with new interest to what was happening. And when it says he remembered, it doesn't mean he'd forgot. It simply means he was connecting what was happening in the present with something he promised in the past and they weren't lining up. And when it says God saw, it doesn't mean he noticed for the first time. It means he paid attention. He studied. He watched them like he was watching no one else. And when he did this, something inside of God changed. The Bible has this phrase in the Old Testament. It says, the face of God. It's a metaphor. It's an anthropomorphic way of speaking about God. When God turns his face, he pays attention to someone. And this is what's happening in Exodus chapter 2. God turns his face and he stares at the people who are in slavery. And inside him, he decides to do something about it. He never just looks at them and says, I'm here if you need me. He always follows the attention with a plan. If you're an Israelite and you've been in slavery for 400 years, the first thing this teaches you is that your potential always lies in someone else. It's never in you. It's always someone outside of you who notices you and calls it out of you. The other thing you notice is that whenever God pays attention, he follows it with a plan and that plan almost always involves another individual. It's a Moses. He never just says, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I will do it. Now you go. Whatever he intends to do for someone else, he does it through another person. In the New Testament, there's a corollary of this. Jesus has come. He's begun to preach. The disciples have not been identified yet. Not all of them. Nathaniel is sitting under a tree. Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, come and see the person that we have found. We think he might be the one Moses and the prophets talked about. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says, in pure prejudice, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip says, well, come and see. He gets up to walk and he notices Jesus is already walking to him. And Jesus says, now, now here is a true Israelite. 
What does he mean by that? He means he is about to call the new Israel into existence. He is about to identify the people of God in the New Testament like Moses identified them in the old. He sees in Nathanael the future Nathanael does not see. And he says, now this is the new Israel. Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus says, I saw you while you were sitting under the tree before Philip came to you. Translated, I saw you before you saw me. And I saw in you something you do not see. And what Jesus does is simply to call it out. Can I get to the practical part of the sermon? Yes? You're waiting. This is what each one of us is called to do for other people. Problem is, some of us come so damaged that we cannot think beyond our own situation so that when, when, when we feel the face of God turn and look at us, all we can think about is how our lives are going to change. What we miss is that God has already identified the people around us that he intends to shepherd through us. We didn't know this. The call of God on our life was never just about us. It was always about the people around us. In the call to follow is a call to engage. It's the other half of the Christian life. Just as Jesus says, follow me, there is potential. He releases us on the day he calls us in order to be that person for somebody else. The problem is that life, society, school, work, retirement, it's just wired in such a way, you guys, that it is hostile to this calling. If I go to school or I'm in work, all I can think about are the assignments. All I have in front of me are the deadlines, the expectations. I'm always dealing with my own insecurities always feeling like I got to try and prove myself again to whom? And so life is hostile 
to caring for others because there just isn't time. If we were to take this seriously, we would have to redefine our jobs so we don't just go to work and do our jobs. And this is easy to do because the more you do your job, the better at it you get. And because you don't like doing things you're not good at, it's pretty comfortable to stay inside of the job you know. Man, you can master that. Until you turn 60 or 65 and realize the job was never the point. It was always the people. If you're in school, you're studying for a career, it is easy to think that my career is the reason I'm here. And once I get this, then I can go and begin my life. What I miss is that if I'm in a university, I am in one of the socially richest environments I will ever be in. My networks in school are larger than they will ever be. I am exposed to more people and more ideas than I will ever be exposed to again. When I graduate, that bandwidth will get narrow or narrower. And so I would have to redefine these years as opportunities to form relationships with people where I can elevate them, encourage them, steady them, speak into them what someone spoke into me. Last week, I called you to pray for the places where you work or where you live. So I hope that you were praying for dorms, classes, homes, offices, locker rooms, boardrooms. But you were praying for an environment, a culture, a feel in it. This week, if you're willing, I'd like you to pray for specific people. I'd like you to begin to identify the people that are already around you that God may be calling you to shepherd. Even though you don't feel adequate, even though there's a lot wrong with people around you, God may still call you to identify a few people that you will begin to form relationships with and shepherd them. Not in a condescending way. This isn't parent to child. This is adult to adult. Who are these people and how do you find them? I can give you... Um, four things that have worked for me when I try to identify them. Uh, and they work as kind of a funnel in my mind. 
but I'm looking for these four things. The first one is proximity. I'm usually looking for people that I am already embedded into that community right now. I'm not generally, once in a while, but not generally, looking for people that are uh, all virtual. It's easier now, but I'm generally looking for people that I don't have to schedule an appointment with because they're always in my life all the time. <laughs> like it or not, there they are. Second, I'm looking for people who already look for me. There is a smaller number that already weigh your advice differently. They think you have a, quote, different angle on things. And so when they want another perspective, they generally approach you and ask you to speak into that. Let me be clear about this. What I'm describing is not positional authority. I'm not saying they come to you for permission because they work for you. They come to you for advice because they trust you, whether they work for you or not. Tracking? So there's already a smaller number who have influenced or you have influenced differently. Third is a predicament. Generally, there are people around me whose lives are always changing. Those changes create windows of opportunity for them to hear things they wouldn't have heard before. Six months ago, they may not have been close to listening to an outside voice, but they can't do that anymore because life has changed. And without being opportunistic, which we don't want to be, we want to seize the opportunity for as long as it is there. And fourth, a passion. These are people that I have cared about for a while. They're always around me. And while they're invisible to other people, I see them. And their, their condition bothers me. If you're listening closely, you'll know there's a great opportunity for some of us in the room. Because about, about a year ago, there was a lot of talk in our country about the poor and the minorities. If we care that much, this is your chance. The people who change conditions for the poor and the minorities are not the ones with the strongest convictions. Everybody has convictions. They're the ones who actually build relationships with the poor and the minorities. And in that relationship, 
their future changes. Their future, like ours, lies in somebody else. You still there? A couple of talking points. One, what we're talking about here is not a lot of people. We're talking about a handful of people. We're talking about probably somewhere between three and six people. There are somewhere between three and six people that are in close proximity. They wait your conversation. They may or may not be in a situation and you feel yourself drawn toward that person. There's three to six. It's true. You can shepherd uh, more people, some, but you should shepherd some people more. You will have to get that number down so you can focus and practice the disciplines. Otherwise, you're just throwing things out. You will have to aim more carefully. And I just think you can't take on more than three to six. In fact, if you want the research, we'll show it to you later. If you're high on those kinds of things, the research actually bears this out. Second, this is not a curriculum. This is a relationship. It's open source. You're not starting here and then this, 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 and this. It's dialogic. You're building a relationship with these people. And in the process, things arise and the two of you deal with them. You can't know today what you'll need to know a month from now until you're in that relationship and third, this is not forever. You can't say, well, I will be with this person uh, from now until they graduate or until they die. You don't know how long. It could be a short season. It could be many years. You don't know. But when it's time, you'll know and you release. Fourth, this is not hierarchical. It's relational. So you don't have to find people that you think are worse off than you. Um, people that, how to say it, uh, uh, in the social stratas of America, there may be one strata. This isn't a caste system, is what I'm saying. The tendency among Americans <clears throat> is to favor the least of these, and we should. It's to focus on people on the margins, and we should. But what I've learned in the last few years of my life is that we too often ignore people at the top. The smart, the powerful, the rich, and the talented. 
are among some of the loneliest people you will ever meet. Because everyone they know wants something. And they worry about this. They either want permission, they want money, or they want access to something. And so they have learned to insulate themselves from the perpetual need, from the double agenda all the time. And it wears them out. So while you may focus on people on the margins, certainly have some in that category, don't ignore people that are at the top. You can't do this if you still want something from them. If it's always money, then it's hard for you to be friends with the rich. If it's always power, it's hard for you to be friends with the powerful. You will have to disavow yourself of these things so you won't neither. So you will be motivated by neither greed nor intimidation. But they're out there. And they need you. And if you think you're not capable of doing this, remember, it wasn't the most accomplished or the smartest that influenced you. You'd be surprised what you can do if you let God use you. Finally, what I'm describing um, you do not have to tell them. <laughs> you shouldn't. You'll wreck it. You shouldn't send a text or an email that says, Congratulations! I have decided to shepherd you. That would be the kiss of death. It would be far better for you to say nothing to anyone but God. And then simply to practice the disciplines of a shepherd, which we'll start talking about next week. So here's what you'll do. You'll go home today and you will begin to pray for the place. As you pray for the place, you will find there's a handful of names that keep coming up. When you pray for those names, do not pray over them. Pray from inside of them. Pray out of them. Put yourself in their situation and begin to pray as them to God. And what you'll find is invariably you will linger on certain names and certain situations will cling to you. As they do, write that name down. Do not show it to them. Do not show it to friends. Simply say, this is someone that God wants me to come alongside. Last question. What if every person in this room had somebody like that? I don't think they do.
Is there someone in your life that you could call at two o'clock in the morning and you could say, it has hit the fan. Meet me in St. Louis in the morning. I'll explain later. And they would meet you there. You need, outside of your parent, you need someone in this world who would do that for you. Because when you find them, your life just changed. Are they in this room? What if everyone in this room was that person for five others? That's it. You can still pay attention, still have lunch, still care about thousands if you want, but there were five. I bet between the number of people in this room and the number watching online were over a couple thousand. What if every one of them had five? That's 10,000 people. You do not think that would change a work environment? That would change a city.